Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast where women are really honest about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a man's world. My guests are wonder women from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real problem. I know this only too well as female Southeast Asian mechanical engineer and kind of a minority within a minority. I'm Dr. Shinise Mara, an engineer turned broadcaster. Throughout my career, I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation. And through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. Talking to these exceptional ladies has often left me feeling empowered, hopeful and excited about life. I believe silence will enrich you too. Every week, a woman in STEM shares her unique experiences with absolutely no pressure in having to promote her accomplishments or guard her impressive reputation, because I've come to realize everyone is just way more open and relaxed when they're anonymous. So I deliberately disguise my guest voices so that we're just connecting as human beings rather than human doings. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of physics and materials engineering. Hi. Hello. Hi, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yes, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So physics and material engineering, uh, those are two very uh, (laughs) tough subjects, I must say. Um, How did you end up doing what you do? So... Growing up, I was really interested in music and science and math. Those are kind of my favorite subjects in school. And so I was trying to think of what I wanted to major in in college, but didn't quite have something um, that really stood out to me, like a, a subject. And it wasn't until I realized that acoustics, which was the physics of music, um, was the thing that existed and people studied it that I realized, oh, I, I really want to study physics. I thought engineers just worked on planes, and I did not want to do that. So um, I decided to major in physics and minor in music. And that led me on a trajectory towards doing research on sustainable energy. Oh, wow. Okay. That seems like a lot of um, different subjects all kind of um, coming together as one. I mean, first of all, music. It is absolutely beautiful how music is so mathematical yeah I mean did you realize that there was a link no as a kid I did not really realize there was a link between science and math and music even though you know music is just our ears hearing vibrations of the air so um it's all in based in science and based mathematically It, it makes sense now to me but I wasn't aware of it growing up with with what you studied, what were you able to, um, I mean, you say you work in sustainable energy now. What's the kind of link between music, um, acoustics, physics, and what you're doing today? There's not too much linked between acoustics and what I do today. Um, I guess there are some analytical techniques that use acoustics to measure properties of materials, but I don't do much work in that. Um, when I went to school, I or when I went to college, I kn- didn't know what I wanted to do in physics. And so I tr- just tried a bunch of different, any kind of research or internship opportunity I could have, I tried. So I did anything from looking at um, thin film, like magnetism, 
to astrophysics, to electrochemistry. So I, I looked at a lot of different fields. Yeah, I mean, with what you studied, it just seems so, I mean, it's kind of like broad, but also very specific at the same time that it seems like um, your the world was your oyster, really. I mean, you're kind of, when you study something like math and physics, it's like you were unraveling the the secrets or code of the universe. It's definitely yeah, a hard field going into and thinking, okay, at the end of this, I want a job, you know, because it's such right. a broad field. And um, I have so many interests. And it's it was really hard for me to figure out what resonated with me the most, not just in the subject matter, but the actual practice of the science on a day to day basis. Mm, yeah, You know, where would I find joy in my work? So how did you sort of like end up um, turning your attention to something real world? Like what was the process of going from a kid who just loved music and math and physics to uh, what you do today? I mean, has it been a bit of a journey? It was the opportunities that I took advantage of and finding what resonated with me. So I in my senior year of college, of undergrad, I took an internship working with a professor on campus on um, fuel cell materials. And I had no idea what a fuel cell was until that point. <laughs> and um, through this internship huh. or through this research. But this is at college. This is, a, yeah, in college. And through this research, I doing research about fuel cells, I was like, okay, well, what are fuel cells for? Oh, it's a sustainable energy technology. Well, why do we need sustainable energy? Oh, we, you know, there's <laughs> there's all these fossil fuels, the carbon emissions, like mm. we need we have limited resources on this planet. So just kind of opening my mind to global issues and yeah. realizing, wow, with technology improvement, we can solve a lot of these issues that we're having. Mm. So Right after that intern or that research experience, I got another internship doing f- more fuel cell, fuel cell research, but in a government organization. And it was there that my mentor was a PhD in material science and engineering. And I loved the way he talked about materials. He had just had a neck yeah. surgery and it was just going on and on about the PET trant like bolt in his neck. I was like, why are you so yeah. excited about this plastic bolt in your neck? And it, um, <laughs> just hearing him talking about crystalline structures mm-hmm. and, you know, surface effects and electrochemistry, I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And so um, that's when I decided, oh, I want to go to grad school and get my PhD in material science and engineering. So, yeah. Yeah, I must say um, material materials have always deeply fascinated me I mean it's just so incredible the variety that's out there and different characteristics and how they can just do such wildly different things and their application and I mean I've never understood why materials um, engineering has been less popular than the other types of engineering I feel like I used to take materials for granted you know, we see all these stuff around us every day and we don't really think too much about mm. them. But every material that you're interacting with every day has been designed a certain way by a materials engineer. Yeah. 
And I mean, they have extraordinary properties and we're only just beginning to understand those and use those to their full potential. Yeah, I guess when I first heard that you uh, are a physics and materials engineer, I was thinking, gosh, those, you know, they're pretty um, separate subjects. I mean, I think it's because I've just recently uh, done a film on quantum computing and the physics involved in that. Yeah, the physics involved in that um, is 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 very oh, cool. abstract. Um, but I mean, yeah. physics really is the absolute fundamental foundation of all of this, isn't it? All of what? All of the universe? <laughs> well, all of it, you know, whether it's materials engineering, quantum computing, I mean, you know, just yeah. acoustics, you need physics to be able to get your head around everything after that, really. Yeah, I think physics does a good job of giving us at least a, a way to approach problems and mm. it helps us form at least the best kind of models we have of experimental systems. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, it's really hard because in experimental sciences, um, you can't accommodate for every single variable, whereas a lot of physics, the more theoretical side, at least you're, you know, basing, um, you're creating a theoretical model, but it's for like a perfect system. Mm. But when you're doing the experiment, it's like it gets you know, the real <laughs> nuts and bolts. Like <laughs> You can't accommodate every single variable. So kind of for me, going between physics and then materials engineer side, mm. I can work between that theoretical science and then the applied science as well. Have you ever experienced a snobbery between physics and engineering? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. So it wasn't just in my head then, because I, I always found that um, there was a bit of a sort of like, uh, I'm just going to use the word snobbery. I'm not going to use the word elitism <laughs> between physicists and <laughs> engineers. I don't know. Engineers are such kind of like nuts and bolts people, a bit more grounded, uh, a bit more humble um kind of they just get on with finding solutions whereas physicists can almost go off you know in other dimensions um of thinking and they can be very much in their head do you find that yeah um i think my experience with it let's see how how can i phrase this <laughs> so i love physicists so much. I mean, I am one and I have many friends who are, mm. but I find that the humor in physics is very exclusive. <laughs> it's not inclusive. Right. It's like, we are the physicists. If you, if you don't know Maxwell's equations, like the back of your hand, then, you know, you're not a physicist. You're not worthy of being a physicist. And I don't like that sense of humor because especially fields like physics, we need mm -hmm. to have more inclusion. Yeah. We need more people in that field, you know, more diversity in that field. Um, and I think the general, like kind of the myth of how oh, only smart people can do physics, mm. like that, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, do you think that's true? Because I mean, physics is hard. But do you think it should be more inclusive? I definitely think physics should be more inclusive. I definitely do think it's difficult. 
But I think in some ways, people put up barriers in the field that don't necessarily need to be there. Um, I- yeah. What kind of barriers? Because maybe, you know, people listening to this podcast would be like, yeah, I've never, ever resonated with physics. Um, what kind of barriers have you identified on your journey? I feel like, um, I mean, there's so many I could talk about. So one of the first distinctions I think is I've noticed on like a college campus where I did graduate school, you walk into the humanities building and there's this huge welcome sign, just a welcome (laughs) sign. And, And just seeing that you're like, Oh, this is great. You know, I'm glad I'm here. Um, in the physics department, there's no welcome sign. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not, you kind of have to impose yourself in that mm, environment. Yeah. And um, why do you think that is? Oh, man. I think a lot of people are insecure. And when you have insecure people, they're going to be putting other people down to try to, you know, create a safe space for themselves. Oh, my gosh. It's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think about it a lot. <laughs> I'm very passionate about um, encouraging people in STEM. So often I don't dumb STEM down, but I try to make it much more human and much more appealing. This podcast is one example of that. Um, and often I'm met with people saying, oh, well, you're just, you're making it dumb. You're dumbing it down. Um, and I find that really hurt because I don't want to exclude anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found, you know, as a woman going into physics, have you found this attitude of having to face resistance to you going into something like physics or engineering or STEM academia? Yes, every day. <laughs> So, I mean, as an, as an undergraduate, I don't think my experiences were so bad, but um, I had experiences where, for example, I had the highest grade in my thermodynamics class, and some of the men in my class went to the office hours to ask for help on some homework, and the professor almost like turned them away, basically saying, oh, you know, this woman has a high grade in the class. Mm-hmm. She, you should understand it. Like, she's just a girl. Why don't you understand it? Um, so there was stuff like that. But um, more in grad school is when I faced the oh, most yeah. resistance. I mm. I matched with an advisor in a lab, and I was the youngest. I was the only female graduate student. I was in a physics lab, but I was a material science and engineering um, PhD student, and. I just, every day I was reminded I was a woman by my colleagues. Um, And it was, they didn't know how to talk to women, you know? So it was this mix of them being awkward, but then what they would say to me would be pretty much harassment. It was harassment, Um, jokes, belittling. They wouldn't ever talk to me about the research itself. And um, one of the students in particular, other PhD student, He would actually tell me, I would ask questions about the project we were working on, and he would just tell me, oh, you'll never understand that. Um, Not like, oh, it's difficult to understand. No, you will never understand that. So 
it was a lot. Of, yeah, it's so subtle, isn't it's it? So it? subtle, and it's so difficult to report because you know Title IX, which we have yeah. in the universities here, only protect protects against different categories. You know, gender, uh, religion. Uh, disability you know so if it falls outside of a category and if it's just general harassment Mm. you can't report it yeah and then there's also the side of kind of not wanting to be moany or um not want to just be complaining for every little thing that's said because then like people describe you as um you know interacting with you is like walking on eggshells (laughs) that's the thing is when you're when you're in that graduate student environment, at least that I was in, where it's very toxic, everyone's insecure, everyone's putting on this facade, trying to live up to some ideal of what a physicist should be. Mm. Um, and then people are belittling, belittling you. And then as a woman, I feel like at that point I in my career, I didn't have that confidence and self-assurance to speak up yeah. against what was happening. And I did what my mother and my grandmother probably did before me and which is, you know, brush mm. it off, but not just brush off. I actually developed an eating disorder. Um, I developed chronic stomach pains. Mm. I thought I had a disease, um, but it was all that mind body connection yes. that led to this, physical and mental illness. So, you know, it got really serious for me. And I thought I was going to have a chronic illness I would have to live with for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it is actually, it can be that serious actually, because um, I have noticed on a daily basis that um, standing up for yourself as a woman is something we have to do in addition to our jobs yes and it just adds that extra bit of load onto our day um what I find is that um I'm always having to fight to be taken seriously and to be accepted for what I bring to the table it's a fight I, it was a fight for me too. Mm. It was a fight for a very long time. I altered how I dressed. Sometimes I would dress like a techie, you know, the the jeans and the t-shirt, like I don't care. Mm. And then sometimes I would dress more professional. Like maybe if I dress up, they'll take me seriously. That didn't change anything. You know, I tried altering how I act. I tried to be nice and super um, like friendly and, and, you know, giving too much praise, mm. you know, just to try to like get them yeah. to like me. Um, and then I also tried being a recluse and not really interacting too much. Mm. Anything I did never changed my situation. And what I discovered is that I, I had to let go. I had to let go of what other people thought of me. I had to let go of that fight and just be my mm. authentic self and trust that, you know, if, my work is good enough and I don't need to keep trying to, you know, twist and turn and morph into someone I'm not just to please others around me. I don't have any control over however other people think of me. Um, And what I found was at least in my current job, um, which is the best working environment I've been in so far that when I let go, 
and I was able to, my work improved and people started taking me seriously. It kind of all fell into place once I let go of trying so hard. Um, but I feel like very fortunate to be where I am and with the coworkers I have today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I feel teary actually hearing you say that because I think uh, women in STEM um, and probably women not in STEM, um, you know, are often just really just wanting to be the best versions of themselves. And I think often we can be really fighting battles that we didn't even know we were fighting, you know, just for being now. Um, and to hear you say, well, ultimately I discovered that, you know, really you had to just believe in yourself. Um, it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think I was raised in an environment where I was taught to respect authority. Yeah. And I think in fields like physics, you're also that values in place where you respect authority. Mm. Um, but the authority that I was taught to follow were always men, you know? Yeah. And in recent years, like just the past couple of years, in fact, I've kind of been really watching myself and who I'm, who, which authority I'm actually trusting. Am I trusting um, myself at all? Because that's really the only person mm. I can really trust. For <laughs> um, maybe, you know, my closest friends and family. But oftentimes I think when you're in a mentoring situation in a workplace, you place I, I used to place all my trust in my mentor, but then when my mentor became abusive and I just did not see that because I thought he had the best intentions behind it, that's what really led to me suffering. Um, sorry, I'm just kind of rambling about this, but it's... Um, no, just, it's deeply fascinating like, and it's perfect content for this podcast. I think so. women in general are taught not to trust themselves and not to listen to their, their gut and their intuition. And that's exactly what you need to be listening to in order to be your best self and do what you, you need to do and what you want to do. That's cause that's really all you need to do. <laughs> do what you want to do, you know, have fun. <laughs> so. Um, I love yeah. that. I love that women are raised to not listen to their gut. And they are raised to ignore their intuition. And, you know, intuition is one of our most powerful characteristics as women. You know, we're yes. so deeply connected to this earth. I mean, every single month, our bodies do things that are beyond our control and are under the influence of kind of universal or planetary forces. I don't, I don't know. But like, you know, we are so deeply connected to this earth yeah. and to actually be raised to ignore that um, and then told that we're crazy if we don't ignore it is something that I've certainly experienced. I don't know about other women, but I've certainly experienced that where I'm taught to follow another, yeah, I love the way you call it authority, Um you know, put simply, I've been taught to mm -hmm. listen to my male elders above all else. 
and um that has really mm-hmm. uh i've probably spent a lifetime just trying to undo that programming yeah, yeah. it takes practice for sure what do we then trust instead because you know you're kind of groping in the dark with finding a new way of trusting it you know it's really hard um when i was when i realized i had this eating disorder and i had these stomach pains and they weren't a cause of a disease the doctors were prescribing me crazy medication and i was like this is ridiculous like this isn't helping me you know um and i you know, I'm a scientist, I started paying attention to the patterns, you know, when was I getting sick? And I realized I was getting sick after meeting with my graduate advisor. And I realized that the stomach pains were caused by stress. And thank goodness for the internet. And I wasn't, I was raised Catholic. But so um, I knew about prayer, but I didn't know much about meditation and mindfulness growing up. But that's what I stumbled upon. Yeah. And I started meditating. And I know that's one of your interests. I saw it on your website. Yeah. Um, so that like meditation really changed my whole life. And um, I feel like that helped me with tuning into my intuition and trusting myself. Right. I mean, meditation can be extremely difficult because basically you have to sit with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you've been trained to always be building yourself up from what you get from the outside, it can be difficult with your insides. Oh, yes. It's so hard, but. Yeah. I mean, how did you, how did you, how did you um, get on with that process? Because I'm assuming that you ended sort of like making that um that switch from external validation to internal kind of rejuvenation. So actually this, the switch didn't happen because of my career. Um, it happened because of my personal life. So right after I finished, I well, I left graduate school with my master's. And at the time I was dating a guy and we moved in together. Um, it just made sense for us financially more than our relationship. But um, we moved in together, and a month later, he was drugged and kidnapped and raped by multiple men. And it overnight just transformed my world. Um, I went from, you know, he was my boyfriend to I was his caretaker. And he was, he basically had a psychotic break and suffered from PTSD. Um, He suffered from agoraphobia, depression, suicidal thoughts. And I was taking care of him basically every day. Um, I had to drive him to work and I had to, you know, get all our meals and do all the chores. And I took all of this on myself because in my mind, I thought, you know, this horrible thing has happened to him. He did not deserve this. He needs the space to heal. And I'm going to help him heal by taking on everything. And that was like the worst thing I could have possibly done in that moment because in order for him to heal, he had to heal himself. I could not heal him. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that following year, which was my first year in my, my job, um, 
you know, I just gone through this really abusive graduate school experience. And then now I was caring for this man who had been raped. And um, that really traumatized me, I was doubly traumatized from both those experiences. And so um, it wasn't until like, I waited a year to make sure that he was seeing a therapist. And I started seeing a therapist before I broke up with him when I knew he was in a state where he would have a support system. And, you know, I, I was worried he would kill himself. Um, but once he was in a safe situation, I broke up with him. And then um, after that, it was just a journey of healing from that for me. And so that's when I actually signed up to do yoga and I ended up doing a Kundalini yoga session, which just, oh my gosh, it was a crazy experience. And I felt like layers of trauma just lifted off of me. And I'm not telling everyone to go out and do Kundalini yoga, like it'll save your life. But it was just a, a big light bulb moment for me where I was able to really clear my mind for the first time in years. And I knew that I needed to keep, um, you know, my mental health up. So that brought me into meditation. Mm. Gosh. Wow. And so, because <clears throat> I am very familiar that um, the most difficult situations allow us to have the biggest breakthroughs. Um, I remember... J.K. Rowling saying in a Harvard commencement speech um, that Otto became the foundations upon which she built her life or something to that effect. And um, it sounds like you had reached your rock bottom, um, but it's exactly what kind of broke you open um, to find yourself. Yes, in my PTSD recovery, I've had to reconstruct my life. I started with just doing nothing at all just I just worked. And then on the weekends, I would just lay in bed, just physically, emotionally exhausted for probably close to three months. And from there, I just realized, you know, I minimized every all the noise in my life, and then just brought back things that only certain things that served me. And only things that brought positivity and love into my life. Um, Mm. So that's been a, a crazy process. But, you know, it's, it's what I needed to do to heal. And I'm in a way grateful that I had that so early in my life. Mm. I mean, through that crazy process, were you continuing your work in STEM or was that too taxing? Yeah. No, I continued. And, you know, I was promoted to my dream job of senior scientist in less than three years of working at the company without a PhD. Wow. So <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Gosh. So while you were managing all of that trauma and healing, you were able to still focus at your job. I don't know. There were days I was not focused for sure. And mm. I took a lot of, not a lot of days off. I mean, I have PTO. So I would take PTO off on days when I needed to. Um, I still dealt with, you know, I had to go to HR a few times for little instances but what's pto oh pay time off (laughs) ah okay right yeah so um it was it's not easy i mean to this day i had a weekend like a couple weeks ago where i was in bed all weekend with anxiety attacks like i'm still i'm still going through this it's a Mm. 
the day-by-day thing. It's said sometimes that we get involved in situations that are actually um, opportunities for us to resolve past kind of trauma or wounds that were set up in our childhood. Um, Do you see similar patterns in your own life where maybe you gravitated towards situations that allowed you to resolve um, the unresolved from your childhood days? Somewhat. um, I do think that in my, I had a, I had a good childhood um, and I feel very fortunate for that. I guess the, the whole authority thing, that comes up over and over in my life is a big one though. Um, You know, my parents wanted the best for me, but they often thought they knew what was best for me and I didn't have some of my needs met. Um, Mm. So the fact that I didn't have my needs met in the past and I pushed down those feelings of what I actually needed. And then nowadays when, you know, I'm single, I don't have children it's all about me. I can be selfish. So now I get to address my needs as they come. And it's, it's definitely a learning process for me still. So, yeah. So would you say that you had um, quite sort of tough parents that expected a lot from you? I think they did expect a lot from me, but at the same time, you know, I was talking to my therapist about this. Um, They, I, I was afraid of failure. I was always afraid of failure, but I was smart. So I never failed. So I never actually went through that process as a kid of failing. And it, I guess it, you know, it wasn't until graduate school when I failed quote unquote, my PhD program. And so that was a huge shock to me because I had never failed before. And so I think our relationship with failure is, so important because if we're avoiding failure our whole lives we're avoiding our highest potential too i completely agree with you i think um, as women in stem which is really all i can talk about because that's been my experience i think you know we often go into stem because we're good at maths and physics and those kinds of subjects and we're not really used to failure and we keep going and we keep going and we just are always expecting A's and top marks and things like that. And we're kind of running away from the experience of failure. Um, But it is the experience of failure that teaches us the most. Again, it's back to that rock bottom thing. Exactly. I think that, um, especially as as an experimental scientist, you make a mistake in lab and physics doesn't lie. You break something, you break it and it's your fault. You know, you can't blame it on the weather. <laughs> so that was definitely yeah. something that I struggled with early on. I was afraid to operate equipment because I was afraid of breaking it. But whenever I would break a piece of equipment, I would have to fix it. And then I know exactly how it would work. And so I'd almost learn more just by breaking something than if I never broke it in the first place. Mm. So. These days when I'm training someone new, I'd I be sure to mention, oh, it's okay to break it and make mistakes. Like, you'll just fix it. Mm. So are you of that mentality now where you're like, failure's fine? I try to be. Most days I'm good. But of course, you know, there's a part of me that's still afraid. 
But I do try to be more aware of that, recognize it when it comes up and kind of be like, I could fail. That means I have to do it, you know, kind of have a a different mentality about it. Mm. It just seems like the older one gets, um, the more self-accepting we are. Um, Do you feel like self-acceptance could have come any earlier in life for you? No, no. I was very shy, very insecure growing up. Um, And when I was in high school, I knew I was going to be near the top of my class, but I did not want to give a speech at graduation. And so I was like, okay, I want to be third in the class because the valedictorian and the salutatorian gave speeches. I ended up being salutatorian, so I had to give a speech. And I thought I would be so nervous for this speech. I even included how nervous I was in the actual speech. But when I got up there in the podium in front of my whole hometown, because it was a small town, I wasn't nervous. (laughs) And I was just excited at the opportunity to address my whole high school class. And that was a big wake up moment for me where it was like, wow, I really enjoy public speaking, which is something I never thought I would enjoy in a million years. And so from there, I really knew I needed to work on Mm. being more social, being more comfortable in my own skin. And that's always been like, going through college, I volunteered for every single speaking opportunity I could. And that's what landed me internships. I actually was like, selected as an intern for a big aerospace company because of a poster presentation I gave. So um, yeah, definitely. It took, it's taken me so many years, but I'm finally comfortable in my own skin on most days. <laughs> I still have my days. I'm imagining you as a, a really sort of like capable, nerdy kid, basically. Like a kid that was just really good at maths and physics. And so because you could excel there, you ended up staying in those fields. Um, But as with a lot of kids, um, you didn't have the self-assurance to go with it. Would that be a true description? Yeah, definitely. I was very, I knew I liked those things. I knew I was good at them, but I never felt good enough or I never felt like I didn't know if I belonged there. Why do you think you had that? Oh, you have me thinking. Um, I think it was just because of the environment I was raised in with um, that being like military and the government. It's very masculine energy and mostly men. And when I was, I I just didn't see where I belonged because I felt like I was this silly, crazy um, like, you know, girl, (laughs) I was feminine and I was just really silly and I wasn't so straight laced and like, I don't like bureaucracy, (laughs) you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of like how we avoid these kinds of wrong self-beliefs, um, from the beginning, you know what I mean? Like, 
how can we make sure that girls are raised differently so that they actually believe in themselves and they don't typecast themselves as not being as not being assertive and having to be kind of shrinking violets basically how do we avoid that so what i've learned from doing outreach and learning from very smart phd's in education is it all comes down to identity how do we perceive ourselves and how do we perceive ourselves in relation to other people other fields of study and just you know the way that certain subjects are taught they're taught in a way that doesn't identify with certain people yeah. um the person i know who does research on this they in particular study hispanic women hispanic girls and science technology engineering mathematics stem and they're trying to put in place programs in schools that can tie these girls identity in with these stem subjects and um it's you know it, it was a it was something that i had to learn by doing outreach myself that me as a as a white woman couldn't really relate to science the way that somebody else from a different background than me would relate to science like science is for everyone it come you know we're all in touch with it every single day of our lives and it's but it's the way that it's taught is only through certain avenues Mm. and through certain word problem examples and not everyone relates to every single word problem out there so yeah, I mean, it's a massive problem to tackle, um, changing the face of STEM. And again, it's back to role models. It's back to women. and Well, it's back to people saying, I'm in science, I've done it, and I'm unusual. And I must say, um, I myself have been knocked down mm-hmm. because I don't look like a typical mechanical engineer. But that's exactly the reason why I need to stand up strong and just say, you know, yes, I don't look like a typical engineer, but I did study it and I was working in that industry. And we need to get rid of the stereotypical images associated with these kinds of careers. Yeah, I I definitely agree that there's these stereotypes that don't, they're negative in a lot of contexts. I'm sorry, I'm trying to think. Okay, I feel like a lot of the rhetoric, I feel like a lot of the rhetoric around women in STEM is comes from this place of, you know, the women need to step up and be role models. And, you know, we need to inspire women to be in STEM. And to me, this is a deeply flawed perspective, because mm. The, the thought that women need to be inspired to go into STEM implies that women can't just be inspired by themselves. You know, they have to have, it's kind of that, like, they have to have that authority tell them, oh, this is what science is, you should like this, or you would like this, and inspire it out of them. Does that make sense? And it, it doesn't women their full agency to make that decision that's best for them and themselves so how should we be approaching it that's the big question you know i i think uh, the changes need to be systematic they need to be less so in the let's 
I mean, sure, we could have people inspiring women, but we also need a lot more work on making environments that are inclusive. Right. And getting physicists to talk about inclusivity, like, <laughs> and not just the women physicists, get the men in there too. <laughs> and, um, well, exactly. I mean, I, so, you know, as a result of the work I do, I end up going into a lot of physics departments and, you know, different departments, there's real buzz around you know, physics subject or, you know, some kind of STEM environment. And, you know, I don't know everything about STEM. I only have an expertise in what I studied. And so sometimes I'm going in there feeling ignorant. But what really unites everybody is just being human. Oh, I think yeah. it's really important to humanize. Oh, yes. And that's why your podcast, I just love it so much because you are creating the space to tell these real stories so that people can empathize. When you get empathy in the picture, that's what gets people, you know, thinking about it and resonating with it and feeling like, oh, this is part of my identity because this is how I feel too. And and so mm. sharing stories is so huge. Having these conversations is so huge. And getting people who don't normally listen to these conversations to listen is also huge. Um, I think just in graduate school in general, what I there's so many issues with the systems in place, but part of the issue is the administrators don't even listen to the students' perspective and take that into account when they're creating these systems. And so mm. um, it's that it's that authority not <laughs> yeah. listening to other people <laughs> and getting what it feels. Employees. It feels like the authority is actually just trying to keep it binary. Because um, even in the job that I do, you know, we're making science content in the media, right? And so yeah. often there are big debates on trying to keep it scientific and trying to keep it binary, like let's just stick to the facts. And I'm often fighting to try and humanize science because, you know, I, I want to be able to relate. I don't want to be impressed and I don't want to be yeah. you know, bombarded with a ton of facts that I'm never, ever going to remember. And I don't want to get caught up in questioning whether I've understood or whether I'm intellectually capable of watching this content. And I don't, I basically don't actually want to connect with my brain. What I want to do is connect my heart. And I feel like science mm -hmm. is massively lacking and why it will always be a niche um, subject is because it lacks heart. It's, it's so unfortunate the way science gets portrayed. I mean, as a scientist myself who, who does this every single day, I get so giddy over my experimental results. And you know, my team loves it that I'm so excited about the research. And when you're excited about something, when you're doing something that's pioneering and cutting edge, and, you know, you don't really have the words to explain these new physical phenomena that you're discovering. So you're coming up with strange metaphors to try to relate it to different people and try to communicate a really complex topic to just anyone. You know, it's all that 
science communication. But when you, the best way to communicate with people is getting, stirring up that empathy. So I totally agree with what you're saying and what you're trying to do with um, connecting on a human level, because that's the level where people understand. That's why so much of science is personified. Mm. I mean, my work on batteries, we call it a cycle life of a battery and we do a post-mortem analysis when we take them apart. And you know, when your battery Mm. dies, (laughs) you don't say it stops working. (laughs) We personify everything (laughs) um, because that's how we understand it. That's how we can understand it. Yeah. I think what stops people from going down the avenue of really bringing heart to their work is that for some reason we are programmed to believe that the minute you engage your heart and emotions in something it somehow compromises the intellectual authority of it and that is what drives me absolutely crazy because it's like guys I don't want to stay in my head I actually want to engage my entire being in this because we're talking about the fabric of existence here often when it comes to STEM subjects. We're talking about the very fabric of our existence. We're questioning and examining the very Mm -hmm. fabric of our existence. And it's Mm -hmm. wondrous. Um, Like STEM for me contains so much wonder because it allows us as human beings to really ask deep questions and and probe into like our origins yeah um but i feel like science has actually kind of lost that purpose and has just become like this machine you know where it's often sort of like its main purpose is to make money or you know and that you know sorry to say guys who are listening but it's a very masculine approach yes I, yes. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. I even have started saying lately is that science and scientific research is my spiritual practice. Oh, I love that. It's what helps me connect with the universe. Mm. And I mean, we are the universe experiencing ourselves, you know, we're a part, a small part of the universe and that is just insane. And we should be celebrating that, you know, and, I wish I wish science, instead of having this very mechanistic, separatist um, perspective of like humans are looking objectively at the universe, you know, no, we're a part of it, you know. Um, yeah, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. And I think you know that attitude of yours is exactly why we need more women in STEM. And I'm cringing right now that I'm making those gender differences. But I mean, really what I'm ultimately saying is that women do bring that compassion and empathy and humanity to the table, which as a result of them being pushed out for generations um, is severely lacking in STEM now. No, on that note of being so binary with the way that we're talking about genders and um, just when I talk about men and women, I, I mainly just mean masculine and masculinity and femininity. 
And um, yeah, and it's more like even men within these subjects, you know, they are still confined to a certain um, role of being more masculine, you know? So it's like men also being yeah. squashed in their true human humanity just as much. Right. Um, but it, it's this like dominance, um, this patriarchal <laughs> kind of um, value that's comes up in our science, you know, it's everywhere, yeah. but it's also in science. Yeah. And you know what? I just to set the record straight, I have met so many guys, especially within physics who are so empathetic and oh, totally. yeah. so spiritual when it comes to their scientific practice. And actually, I think what it is that I hope disappears entirely is a macho approach, um, which doesn't infect all men. I think, I don't know where this macho-ness comes from, but I've certainly experienced it in my engineering career. But it's this kind of like, I don't know, like, dominance, greed, um, like can't express their feelings, have to come across as like some power role. I don't know what it is, but like that needs to disappear from STEM because I think that's really uh, severely compromising the, um, the integrity of STEM. Yeah, it unfortunately displaces a lot of people and you know, leads to those toxic environments. Um, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg problem, right? Where you have a toxic environment, but you have these personalities in the toxic environment, but to thrive in the toxic environment, you have to kind of adopt these personalities. So yeah, totally catch 22. Yeah. yeah. So um, to kind of like, you know, veer towards a positive note, I would say that, you know, it's thanks to women like you that are actually standing up for themselves and, um, you know, using their voice to be heard. Thank you. Um, I definitely feel like a lot of women in STEM feel like they need to do more than just exist in that space. But I've come to realize by just existing in that yes. space, I'm doing enough. You know, if I do more, great. If I don't, fine. But existing there is um, yeah. is enough. <laughs> so, so thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate yeah. that. And um, yeah, on another positive note, like, even though I've been through all this, you know, it's life and I love my job. I love what I do. I love that I get to go into work every day and do science. Um, I just feel so grateful and fortunate of the opportunities and experiences that I've had. So, yeah. Like, I feel like you have always followed what you're good at. Is that correct to say? I mean, I played soccer for like 12 years and I was horrible at it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Okay, so what drives you then? What drives you forward doing what you do? I'm just incredibly curious. I'm so curious. Um, okay. And I've followed my curiosity. Right. 
Yeah, because I feel like um, any young girls or even just women feeling like they want a career change um, <clears throat> should should never shy away from following their interests and curiosity. Um, I think what can often be an obstacle to that is people saying, oh, you know, no one's ever done this before. Maybe, I should, maybe it's not possible. But I don't know much about your life, but what I'm gathering from what you've said on this podcast today, you're someone that truly follows what she's interested in, regardless of whether someone's trodden the path before you or not. Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, have you often found yourself as a bit of a sort of like trailblazer? Yeah, I've I've actually I've started some organizations, um, just graduate school organizations, and I am. I do consider myself more of a visionary, but I feel so early in my career, I'm not, I haven't reached my vision yet, for sure. Um, What's your vision? uh, You know, I can't even put it into words. It's like a feeling. It's like a, it's like my heart pulling me forward in a certain direction. You know, I don't know where it's going to lead. Um, But the more I learn, the more people I meet, and the more I reach out and communicate and learn from others, the more it gets defined. Um, I'm really, I'm interested in policy. I'm interested in how businesses and the governments can work together. Um, But I don't have a defined vision. Mm. (laughs) Like I feel crazy almost saying this, but it's like, I don't know. I've always been very like, I, I've always been a leader, but I haven't always acted on that impulse to lead in everything I do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I really understand and relate to what you mean when you say it's a feeling. Because if someone was to say to me, like, where do you see yourself in five years or whatever? um, I don't know what I'd have sort of materially or, you know, there are no sort of like tangible things I could describe. But all I know is that I want to be it's as you say it's a feeling of wanting be more of who I am or something it's like a really way we're really strange way of describing it but I want to have become even more self-realized um and in self-realizing I want to help other people realize themselves Yes. You know, I think in the past, women haven't had as much agency as we have now. And so we don't have those role models. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, as a child, I couldn't name any people who were my role model because I hadn't ever met someone who I felt like I resonated with enough to be like, I want to be like her or him. Um, and mm. I meet glimpses of those people, but I still haven't found a true role model, you know? Um, so I do feel like. Right. So you're, yeah. so you're looking upon yourself to be that. Yes. I suppose so. I get it. Yeah. And I'm sure you feel the same way too yeah. about what you do. 
Yeah, I've definitely met people along the way who have been so impressive and so inspiring. Um, and if I could take certain parts of people and put them all together in one human being, I guess that is my purpose in life to sort of embody all the different inspirations that I've come across along the way. Um, and I truly want to help other people to never hold themselves back. Because for me, I think my, my own story has been that I've been my biggest problem in life in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things. And I want to help others to not meet with the same self obstacles, if you know what I mean. Oh, 100%. I mean, looking back at everything I've struggled with, it's, it hasn't been all my fault. But I definitely if I had had the kind of empowerment and self assurance and trusted myself, rather than trusted other people, then um, or trusted the wrong people, <laughs> yeah. then um, I would have been probably better off. But, you know, you learn your lesson one way or another. <laughs> yeah. So in closing, then, is that the kind of advice you would give young girls who are finding their way in life? Um, you know, what would be your key suggestions for them? I would say... Developing your own self-awareness is the most important skill you could ever learn. And learning to then trust yourself is the next step. Because um, I think just blinding, blindly trusting impulses is probably not the best thing you want to do, especially as a teenager. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but um, just making loving decisions toward yourself is is probably the most important thing you can do. And um, yeah, sometimes you're the people who think they know what's best for you. They may not know what's best for you and that's okay. They, they may be trying to help and they mean, mean well, but they don't, you know, what's best for you. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was the best. <laughs> That's it from my STEM guest this week. My goodness, we really delved into some deeply complex and spiritual conversations there. And I hope you as listeners have been able to follow. It's not been the easiest of conversations, but we've raised topics that I think really needed to be raised and um, I hope we've brought your attention to um, some issues that need to be brought into the public domain. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence.